0: I want to clarify something really quickly before we begin. I said in our introduction just a moment ago, I said, we have now come through chapter 24 and we've gone through chapter 25. And really, the subject matter that I have discussed as we've gone along, really I have chosen and I have picked various aspects of what happened in the last week in the life of Jesus without going verse by verse by verse by verse verse and then lose the flow of the final week. And I didn't want to do that. Like, for example... When we came to the end of chapter 23, we discussed the destruction of Jerusalem. So therefore, it knocked out chapter 24 without going verse by verse, and I wanted to do it that way. This sermon today is number 13 in the series, and we have finally left Tuesday. In fact, it is sunset, or after sunset, sundown, if you will, on Tuesday, which was, to the Jew, Wednesday. And that's the setting or the scene of the things that are going to transpire by the time we get to chapter 26. As we begin our lesson, though, we find that the preparation for the death of Jesus Christ is seen in three elements. It is seen in three perspectives. Number one, we see the preparation of what we would call the preparation of hateful rejection. In verse three, the very next verse here. It says, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. In other words, after Jesus was speaking, or as Jesus was speaking those words that are found in verse 2, which said, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, what did he say? To his disciples, he said, in two days is the Passover. And then he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Obviously, the Son of Man simply was the human form of the Son of God, showing that our Messiah was not only fully divine, but he was also fully human. While Jesus was speaking that, notice what was happening at the very same time. The chief priests the scribes, the elders of the people, they came to the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. It is now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Wednesday. They were all together there, all the rulers of the people, along with this Caiaphas, the high priest, and they had one thing in mind. And I can't even fathom this. Sometimes when we look at the death of the cross, we think about what Jesus went through. And we think about how we felt or we would feel in our hearts because of our love for Jesus now. Then we can't fathom that this actually happened. But understand, hateful rejection had to be. If there was not hateful rejection, Jesus would have never gone to the cross. So while all this was going on, notice the next verse. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. Now, you know, it's one thing to have a plan. It's another thing to have somebody else in control. You know, they had a plan. They had a plan. Their plan was, let's do this in eight days. You know what Jesus said in verse 2? Nope, it's going to happen in two days. You know why? Because in two days, it's going to be Friday, and Jesus would go to Golgotha's brow. They thought, wait a minute, we got this plan now, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to get together, and by trickery, we're going to figure out how it's going to be that we would kill Jesus. But notice, notice, it was not going to be in their timetable, the very next verse. Notice, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. All right, little side note. Think about all the people that were in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. I've heard all manner of numbers, and I have heard numbers into the millions. I don't know how many people were there, but I'm going to tell you there was a whole lot of people there. Now, there's a lot of people, too, that Jesus healed when he walked on the faces of this earth, and there were a lot of people that loved Jesus. And I think that's really, as another side note, that's why he wasn't taken in Jerusalem. It was outside, so there wouldn't be a revolution. There wouldn't be a fight, and God was totally in control. But they didn't want to do it during the time of the Passover unless there was an uproar of the people. Jesus said, though, you know what? It's going to happen in two days. It's going to happen in the timetable that the Lord had said. Now, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, they're all together. And by now, they've had more of Jesus than they could possibly stand. He's intimidated them beyond their ability to deal with it. The people are now following him. They are threatened. And Caiaphas is insecure. Now, by the way, a little bit of background around this man, Caiaphas. Now, do you remember me saying over the years that Caiaphas was a real crumb? Caiaphas was a real creep? I'm so glad that Josephus said about Caiaphas what he said, so I'm not wrong in that. Caiaphas was a terrible human being. In fact, do you remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead? Do you remember what Caiaphas said? Now I can maybe understand if Caiaphas said, now wait a minute, people are saying that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but I don't believe it. So we got to do something with Jesus to get him out of the way because the people are following Jesus and it's a fake and a fraud. Maybe I can follow that line of thinking, but you know what Caiaphas said? Caiaphas said he raised Lazarus from the dead, so we have to do something with Jesus. And then he said those words, he said it's better than one man die and save a nation. And that's exactly what the Lord did for the world. It's better for one man to die for the sins of the world than all of us to be lost. But in his mind, he's thinking, wait a minute, we got to save the nation. So let's take Jesus out of the way. Let's talk about Caiaphas a little bit more. A little bit of background. Josephus says his name was Joseph Caiaphas. And this is what Josephus said about him. He said he was conniving, treacherous, wicked, vile, and deceitful. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't know that I know about all those words, what all they actually mean, but I'm going to tell you, it sounds pretty negative to me. He's a bad guy, he's an awful person with a motive. In fact, by the way, did you know that every time he's mentioned in the scripture, it is in a one dimensional fashion? Every time that he is mentioned, he has one role. He's pictured as one who is either going to plan the death of Jesus or carry it out. Every time. Every time that Caiaphas is mentioned. A conniving man that he was, he married the daughter of Annas, who was his predecessor. Now, who was Annas? You might remember when we go back to the cleansing of the temple. So keep that in your mind about Annas and cleansing of the temple. And we know what happened. Okay, In the court of the Gentiles. So hold on to that for, for just a minute. I don't know why Caiaphas came on the scene to marry the daughter of Annas. Incidentally, I did some reading about that historically, and it was actually tradition that a man would marry a virgin girl sometimes actually being betrothed to them when they were 12 or 12 and a half. I don't know how old the daughter of Annas was, but I do know this. Caiaphas wanted to marry the daughter of Annas, who was the high priest at the time. Annas served as high priest, I believe, from A.D. 6 to A.D., I believe, 15. And then from A.D. 15 to A.D. 37, Caiaphas was the high priest. Now, he married the daughter of Annas. Annas was a very wealthy man. And incidentally about this, I think we have to understand that perhaps Caiaphas must have been a politician, a pretty good one too, to get around Roman rule. Have you ever known somebody that gets along with everybody because they don't stand for anything? I'm talking about people that when they're over here, they agree with these guys. And then they go over here and it's something totally opposite, but they agree with these guys. Now they're in good with these guys. Then they go over there and it's something totally different. They agree with those guys. Pretty soon he's in good with those guys. One scholar said Caiaphas must have been a politician among politicians to get along with Rome that many years. In fact, in fact, it was not common that a man would be high priest that long. For a hundred years, in a hundred year span, there were 28 high priests. Twenty-eight. And the one that followed Caiaphas, his successor, lasted 50 days. So for Caiaphas to do that, no doubt he must have been quite a politician to get along with Roman government. Caiaphas had bought his way in. He married the daughter of Annas, an extremely wealthy and crooked man also. Now, I told you to hold on to the thought about Annas. Here we go. Do you remember what Jesus does? He makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Sunday, and then he just surveys the temple, just takes a look at it. He leaves, he goes to Bethany with the house of his dear friends, perhaps, but we don't know that. We just know he went to Bethany. He could have gone to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. We don't know that, and it doesn't say he just went to Bethany, and he went there for the night. When he came back the, nice de- the next day, he curses that fig tree, and then he cleansed the temple. Remember that he overturned the tables of the money changers, and Jesus was furious. He was angered by that. He said, "You've made the den of thieves, the house of worship. You've made a den of thieves." Do you remember what else he does? He looks and he saw all the merchandise being sold. Do you know who was in control of all the merchandise? It was the man that we're talking about right now. It was Annas. And he had what was called by the way, the bazaars of Annas. All the commercial things sold. Guess what? He got a piece of all of it. You know what Jesus did? He put him out of business. You think he's not mad about that? Put him out of business. That's what Jesus did. He cast them all out. Jesus even did this too. He came on the scene and he said, Now wait a minute. You're using the court of the Gentiles, which by the way was the only place that a Gentile could go. That was it. He said, You're using the court of the Gentiles as a thoroughfare to carry whatever you're transporting and go through. He said, Get out. Don't do that anymore. He cast them out too. I would imagine Annas was quite disgusted with Jesus. He's the father-in-law. The son-in-law is Caiaphas. Caiaphas married the daughter, maybe getting into the upper class, maybe getting into the wealth and prestige and power of the office. There was no king in Israel, so he had the most power. And he understands we have to get rid of Jesus. And it has to be done through the legal process. And really, as twisted and as perverted as they had it, that really was their desire. But they had to have an angle. They had to have an angle, and remember this: in AD. 30, when Jesus began his personal ministry, the law changed. And it was called Pax Rama, and it was dealing with uh, the sword. It means peace among Roman peace. And the idea was nobody could execute someone except Rome. You couldn't sentence anybody to die. You think that's a mistake? Absolutely not. You think that's coincidence? No way. You know why? Because the Jews would destroy or kill someone or execute someone by stoning. And if they stoned Jesus to death, the Bible isn't true. Why did they go to Pilate later on? I'll tell you why they went to Pilate. They had to. It was the law. You think that's a mystery? Nope. God did that. I'll take that to my grave. God did that. Changed the law in A.D. 30 so that in A.D. 33, Jesus would have to nail be nailed on a cross. And he would have to be one as in such a way that Jesus says, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Had to be the cross. Well, they had to figure out a way to come up with a legal manner in which they could kill jesus and it needed a a betrayer In verses three and four verses three and four part of the preparation for that was simply hateful rejection there had to be now as we move forward though as we talk about all the things in which had happened there's a very beautiful scene i got to tell you i've never actually preached on these verses before now That we're going to talk about. Oh, I've referenced it. We all know the story of it. We sing songs about it. But there's something very, very beautiful that happens. And that's the second part of the preparation of Jesus going to the cross. And it is the preparation of loving worship. You know, there wasn't just enemies who wanted Jesus to go to the cross. I'm going to say that again. It wasn't just enemies that wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Do you remember one who sat at his feet, who sat at his feet and hung on every word that he said, whose sister was up serving others and she was sitting at the feet of the master. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to those women when he went to raise Lazarus from the dead and Jesus told them that they're going to see the glory of God? And in their mind, you know what they said? Oh, we're talking about the resurrection. And Jesus was talking about Lazarus. They understood. There were some that understood. Notice this. In the preparation of the cross, something else happened. Now, if you look at the chronological sequence, this is a flashback a number of days. It's Wednesday now, but now there's a flashback to Saturday. And it's this right here. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, this is the flashback. When was it? When he was in Bethany. Now, if you want to know why that there's a jump back there, it has to because it really fits. There's something connected with the betrayal of Jesus with the complaint of Mary's act of kindness. And so it had to happen. And Jesus reflects back on it when he first arrived in Bethany. It was on Saturday when Jesus came there. He left Jericho and he came to the city and he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to be part of all the events. Now, this phrase right here, he stays at the house of Simon the leper. Now, I looked and tried to find out who this actually was. And I don't know. Because I believe there's 30-some Simons mentioned in the New Testament. So who was he? I don't know who he was, but he's Simon the leper, meaning there was a time when he had leprosy. Now, I think this is, I think this is important. There was a time he had leprosy. He couldn't have had leprosy currently because nobody would have gone to his house. Number two, there was no cure for leprosy except who? Jesus. That tells me that this man, Simon the leper, at a prior time or a previous time with his leprosy was healed by Jesus. So on this day, on this Saturday, he invites the Lord over to his house. For a meal. And he was Simon. Used to be the leper. You know who else was there? There was Mary. There was Martha. There was Lazarus. Quite a few guests. What about the esteemed guests we might say? The twelve apostles. They were there too. Good group for a supper. Very important. Verse 7. Notice. A woman came to him. Having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, this al- uh, alabaster flask was um, some some translations say alabaster box, and the flask there simply means it was a thin alabaster, almost transparent vessel. The word box in the King James should be translated vessel and it was a bottle type thing. It was very thin and it was very fat at the bottom and it came up with a neck up to the top and there would be a cork in it. So basically just picture in your mind, not a box, picture a a pouring vessel. Just a vessel, a bottle. Inside of it though... Was very costly, fragrant perfume. Very costly, three hundred denarii. That's one year's wages. Now I think there's some beautiful pictures here. Let's take a look at them. First of all, we know that if a man works for a day back then, the average man that worked all day long, when he got finished with the his task all day long, he would be paid one denarius. So when somebody said a denarius, you're talking about a day's wages. However, that means of exchange was then in its value. If you worked all day, you got a denarius. Jesus dealt with that. He called it a penny in the parable of the vineyard. It was a denarius. Okay? So if you didn't work seven days a week, which they didn't, it's about 300 days worth of working or so. Therefore, a year's wages was 300 denarii. That is costly, fragrant oil inside that bottle now why did they have it you know it's interesting perhaps they were wealthy I don't know there were some wealthy people there but it was very very customary that you had that stuff you know people would travel through dirt they didn't have pavement pavements like we have they'd travel through dirt they didn't have shoes like we have they were open sandals so their feet would get filthy filthy No doubt what a great custom it was to wash the feet of someone when they would come into your midst. And you know, I'll tell you something too. When you go out and you walk out in the hot sun and you haven't had a shower in a while and you didn't have any right guard because they didn't have that then. In fact, right guard and Old Spice were a far, long way off. Okay? You're going to have body odor. So it was very common People kept this stuff. They kept this fragrant oil around. You know why? Because when the people would come for the dinner, they would anoint each person, and not only was it something of honor to the person, but guess what? It was of value to everyone else that had to smell. That's what it was for. It's very, very common. Routine function, a gesture of kindness. Now, Matthew and Mark don't tell us who the woman is, but John does. In John chapter 12 and verse 3, John tells us it's Mary, the sister of Martha. And it was very common to anoint the guests with a strong perfume at the time of meal. Now, I want you to picture this. Can you understand this? Is Mary's the one that's going to do it? And she comes to Jesus and doesn't go any further. She's gonna. That's what she was doing. That's how it started. Started out with the custom. And all of a sudden she takes it to Jesus and doesn't go any further. Doesn't go any further than Jesus. She understands that he's moving toward his death. And somehow in her inner mind, she understands to prepare Jesus in such a way. Because in Jesus going to the cross, get this, in Jesus going to the cross, her redemption was in that too. Do you think of the cross like that? I mean, seriously, we sing songs. We had wonderful songs that we sung that were so appropriate this morning for our topic. All the songs were very appropriate. But do you think about that? Do you think about when Jesus went to the cross and when you think about Jesus and what he has done, do you understand your redemption? You personally, Dave Morgan, your redemption was in that too. You too, Terry Osborne. Your redemption. Your redemption. Mary understood wait a minute, he's going to the cross, and my redemption is part of it. He's gonna bear my sins too. She starts with Jesus, and she can't go any further. And if you compare Mark's account and John's account, you know what she does? She shatters the entire bottle. And then in verse 7, or it says, she poured it on his head. Now, she shattered the bottle. I don't know what it smelled like. I have cologne. If you put on a little too much, your wife says a little dabble, do you? Back it off a little. Pretty strong. I can't imagine what this must have been other than it was very strong, fragrant smell she breaks the entire bottle and in one gospel account it says she pours it on his head but john says she poured it on his feet the sum of which is to say she took that alabaster flax she broke it and she poured it all over his body as an act of love it was an act of honor she was absolutely controlled by service by worship that she couldn't deal with their strength. Let me ask you something. Do you serve the Lord like that? Just answer it to yourself. But I'm asking real direct. Okay? And just pretend like I plugged your name right in it. I plugged it in. So when I'm saying this, I'm speaking to you. Do you serve the Lord like that? Serve the Lord without restraint or do you just give him a little along the way do you serve him without restraint are you pulling back just a little think about it in your life You know what she was doing? She was honoring, worshiping, and serving the Lord without restraint. She took something that was extremely expensive and dumped the whole thing on one guest. Do you know why? It was the only guest that mattered. And I'm going to tell you something else too. If the Lord is not number one in your life, there's nothing in the world that matters in your life. Period. Nothing. Nothing matters. The things in your life matter only because the Lord's number one in your life. If he's not, we need to go back to serving him without restraint and cut her loose and serve him with everything we got. Sometimes we do this though. Okay, 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 but I'm really busy. I'll just give him a little. That's serving the Lord with restraint. So pouring out her love, her heart, her compassion, her unrestrained devotion. And in doing so, she was honoring the one that was going to die and rise again for her salvation, bearing her sins. And notice what happens. Here's a response here of others as they watched her devotion to Jesus. They got mad. You know what they said? Notice when his disciples saw it, they were indignant and they said, to what purpose is this waste? You know, there's a couple things that come to me, a couple things that jump out. Number one, anytime you're going to do something that's good, hear me now, anytime you're going to do something that's good, that reminds somebody else of what they're not doing themselves, they're going to criticize you. It's okay. Anyone that has ever done anything worth anything has been criticized. So, so what? You know, these disciples, can you picture this precious lady? And she dumps the whole thing on Jesus. And now you got the disciples, you got the 12, and they're right there. And they're going, are you kidding me? What a waste. What a waste. you spent it all. We could have done this. We could have given it to the poor. We could have done that. Now, first of all, I think this is an important point here. It's not time for meeting the needs of others. It's a time for worship. Now, in John chapter 12 and verse 6, it says, Judas was the one that made the suggestion, and he did so not because he cared about the poor, but because he held the bag. Notice, John 12 and 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had money, he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. In other words, it's not about that. You know what he wanted? Judas was thinking in his mind, you know what I could do? I could have sold it for 300 denarii. Given it to the poor? Absolutely not. Jesus called him a thief. He wanted to put it in the pouch. It was all about the money. And to stick it in his robe. He knew the whole thing was coming down. He knew it was the end of everything and he wanted the stuff in the bag. Get that bag as fat and full as it can. He already knew what was going to happen. He already knew he could have got a year's wages. And what a great thing he could have had a year's wages. Notice the next verse. When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work. Do you know what this word means right here? She's done a good work. It means this in the original. She has done excellently. She's done excellently. Leave her alone. She's done excellently. Do you know why she had done excellently? It's because she gave all she had. I'm going to tell you, this is the coach in me. I coached for 12 years, I'm now done. I'm going to tell you right now, nothing in the world ever matters in my mind and nothing in the world ever is acceptable in my mind than when you give your best. If it's not your best, I'm going to say it. Shame on you. Be your best. Having a bad day. So what? Be your best. Be your best. Whatever that is. Be your best. You're discouraged a little bit. You got to serve God. So what? Serve God and be your best. Whatever that is, is it going to be the best you have ever been? No, probably not when you're having a bad day. But be your best. I'm going to tell you something. The Lord, in the day of judgment, I don't believe this for a minute. I don't believe that in the day of judgment, it's all going to be laid out. They're going to say, okay, Frank Roncado, how many people did you baptize? I don't believe that at all. How many people were you actually successful in converting? I don't think that's going to be in there at all. I will say this, though. I think what's going to be there is this. What was your effort? Did you try? Did you do your best? Did you work? You might have failed in the results. So what did you work? She did excellently because she gave her all. If everybody in the Lord's church would just start doing their all, can you imagine what we'd be And I'm going to tell you right now, I say this out of love. Every one of you listen to me. I say this out of love. I guarantee you this. Every single one of you has more. That's fact. That's fact. You got more. Oh, no, I'm just... No, 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 no. You got more. You got way more. We all have way more. Then it says in verse 11, look at this. I love the Lord's response. For you have the poor with you always. So they said, "No, wait a minute, we could have sold this and gave it to the poor. Jesus already knew in John 12 and 6, no, you're a liar. It's not why you wanted it. But then he addresses what they said. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. I'm going to tell you, there's a time to meet the needs of the poor. And the Bible does tell us we must do that. And it's not new here. All the way back in the Old Testament, let me give you a passage. I'm talking about Deuteronomy 15 and 11. So this is our responsibility of helping those that are in need. Watch. For the poor will never cease from your land. That's what he was saying up here, by the way. They're always going to be there. I'm going to be here for a short time. All right. The poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall open up your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. This should be your. I thought I caught all my typos. This is not our, it's your. Open your hand wide. Okay, so we understand that. We have to help those that are in need. What's going on here, though? It's a very simple principle. It's saying this, folks. Worshiping God is the ultimate priority in your life. What she did was an act of worship. Worship means to kiss the hand of. It's to bow the head before. It is to literally put your head down symbolically for the Lord. You know what he's saying? Yeah, you got to take care of the poor, but that is not as important as worshiping me. That's what he's saying. Nothing is more important than Worship. Gotta tell you a little story one time. One time there were some people that were at services on Sunday. I don't even remember who it was. I just, remember, I just remember the words. And they were at services Sunday morning. Oh, do you be back this afternoon? Oh no. Oh, we're gonna go down to the soup kitchen down there and we're gonna feed the hungry. Don't you see what's wrong with that? Yeah, we take care of the hungry, absolutely. Yeah, we take care of the needs of the poor. Absolutely. But nothing is a priority over worship. Nothing. That's what the Lord was saying. You got the poor always. They're never going to stop being around you, but worship is number one. So what we can't do, folks, we can't justify not going to services just because we're going to do some good thing over here as a humanitarian. You can't erase your worship to the Lord. That's number one. That's what he was saying. It's the supreme act that any Christian could ever do. Now, notice though what Jesus said about her. He first said, leave her alone. She has done excellently. You got the poor always. I'm not going to always be here. Then notice what he said. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. In other words, it was in preparation. It was in preparation of Jesus going to the cross, dying for the sins of the world. It is in preparation for my burial. Verse 13. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Isn't that amazing? What if you got to be Mary? What if Mary was you? Jesus said, it is so excellent that whenever the gospel, what what we mean by that is is the gospel accounts, in the the gospel accounts, whenever that is read or preached, it's going to be in there. It's going to be in that scripture. You know why? It's going to show what she had done as a memorial to her in her honor of the Lord. Matthew, Mark, and John, wherever that's preached, that has this account. Whenever anyone reads that, you're going to remember what this woman did as a memorial of her loving worship. So, in preparing for the cross, we have hateful rejection. Caiaphas, chief priests, elders, all of them. Two, we have loving worship of Mary. But then there's a final one, and I'll be very brief about this. It is betraying hypocrisy. That's number three. And that's verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Now picture this. When did he do it? It goes back to Saturday. It's following what Jesus just said. This guy was a creep too. It goes all the way back. Judas went out that night in Bethany after hearing Jesus and left and went straight to the chief priests that Saturday night. And what did he do when he got there? Verse 15. And said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. It's all about the money. It's all about the money. He was going to get as much as he could. You know, I think about that. I don't know. I know this. I know that according to Exodus, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. I get it. I get, I get that. I understand that it's the price of a slave. And I know that when Joseph was sold into slavery, I know that he was sold for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. I don't think about it that much because I've done some research, and years and years and years later, at the time that Paul wrote to Philemon about Onesimus, the slave, the amount to purchase a slave there was way more than that. So I look at 30 pieces of silver... To a man that nothing else mattered but the money. And I look at a very paltry sum for a guy that really wanted the money. They counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now remember this, folks. Jesus just said what he said in Bethany. He gave a little sermon about this wonderful, precious woman that anointed him and worshiped him and all of that. He said, Leave her alone. She has done excellently. You know what happened immediately? Judas betrays him. Begins the betrayal. Then verse 16. Listen. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Got the money. And from that time, Luke twenty-two and 6 says, So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. In other words, this is even before the triumphal entry on Sunday. Awful. It was before he cleansed the temple on Monday. It was before all the preaching that he did on Tuesday. He was looking for a moment to betray Jesus. So while Jesus is receiving love from Mary, the plot is beginning in Judas's mind. And I think about this, I think, you know, from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. I don't understand. You know, one, one scholar said he is the greatest example of lost opportunity the world ever knew. Now, I do believe, I don't believe that God made Judas, even though prophetically speaking, he would be the one who lifted his heel against Jesus. I don't think God, from a prophetic standpoint, made Judas do anything. I think God is so brilliant and all-knowing that he knew that he would. And in the fact that he knew that he would, he used that for his cause. It's kind of like God using the wrath of men to praise him. Like we're told. Lost opportunity. He's a traitor. It burned in his mind. There's only three ways, folks. Listen, there's only three ways to approach the death of Christ. Just three ways. Number one, hateful rejection. Somebody might say, no, whoa, 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 whoa. You can reject and not hate. I mean, I love Jesus. no. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my words. And if you do that, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I've kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know what that means? You can't love Jesus without obedience. No, you can't. Can't. So one way... One way to respond or approach the death of Christ is with hateful rejection. That's what Caiaphas did. That's what the chief priests did. That's what the elders did. Or you can do this. You can approach it from loving worship like Mary did. You can make him the focal point of your life. You can be so appreciative for what he's done for you that you're willing to devote your entire life to him. Or, number three, you can do it with betraying hypocrisy like Judas. Some people, folks, some people today fall into those categories. In fact, everybody does. Have you ever stopped to consider that? That when somebody hears the gospel, they fall into one of those three categories once they hear it. Absolutely. Like this. Some hate because they reject it. Some love because they're willing to devote and worship. And get this one over here. Did you get to see this one over here? Don't forget that one. Some pretend. Judas was pretending. Pretending to be there with the Lord, knowing the whole time he was nothing but a hypocrite. And he was trying to find an opportunity to betray Jesus. Which one are we? Which one are we? Rejection, love, or do we pretend in our life?